I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot with Joel and Kim, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. On today's Australian Open quarterfinals catch-up. Daniel Medvedev saves match point to reach the semi-finals. Sviantec fights away past Kanepi. And Rafa Nadal sets up a showdown with Matteo Berrettini. Kim, today is the 26th of January and we are here to catch up on the quarterfinals of the Australian Open at Passing Shot HQ. We have had yet again some more dramatic matches in the quarterfinals today. Daniel Medvedev threw by the skin of his teeth against Felix Auger Aliassime from match point down. Kim, what a match that was. I know you are watching it live. I mean, have you have you recovered from it just just watching it on TV because it was real 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 entertainer. It was such a great match. I think probably the best match of the tournament so far. And um, I I don't think I needed to recover from it. I think Daniel Medvedev is the one that will need to recover prior to the <laughs> semifinals after almost five hours of of tennis. But. Um, yeah, what a great match. I think especially from Felix, he did a lot better than I thought he was going to do. He played so, so well, probably the best that I've ever seen him play, um, serving amazingly and just very composed, you know, despite the fact that, you know, he obviously lost from two sets up, which is not ideal to say the least. Um, yeah, I didn't really feel like he was choking. I don't think... Um, you know, it, it was kind of a bit of both, you know, Medvedev upping his game and just kind of going for it. Um, channeling Novak, I think he said afterwards, uh, much to the dismay of the crowd mentioning his name. Um, but he just kind of thought, well, I've got nothing else to leave now. I'm just going to go for it, try and extend the match, um, see how long I can, you know, get get this going. Um, and obviously came good in the end for, for Medvedev. But yeah, really, really good stuff uh, from both of them. Lots of drama. I had a roof closure as well, you know, that that third set tie break, uh, the rain started falling, they had to stop. So I feel like every dramatic match has a roof closing at some point, <laughs> don't you think? Yes, no, it does. I mean, it was a really gripping match. I mean, four hours, 42 minutes on court. I would have said, if anything, actually, Daniel Medvedev was the one who was choking. You know, he was going into this match as the favourite. He was the you know highest seed left in the draw. And he was two, you know, he was two sets down. He was six, seven, three, six. Felix Ogier Aliassim was playing lights out tennis, backed up by a really, really solid serve. Um, I think even Medvedev acknowledged afterwards he was serving unbelievable. He was all over me, to be honest. So, you know, he was playing some phenom- phenomenal tennis. And, you know, at that moment, I was wondering, is, is Daniel Medvedev going to be crashing out of the Australian Open? But, you know, he did He did fit the switch, didn't he? He told himself, you know, I think he gave himself a new mindset. You know, he spoke about the fact that, you know, he needed, 
He needed to battle. And if Felix was going to want to win this match, he was going to make it as, as difficult as possible for him. He was going to have to fight for every single point to reach a semi-final. And, you know, with that mindset change, it felt like there was an upturn in Medvedev's play. Um, you know, his he, he reduced, I think, the, you know, the unforced error count. He was back to his old, I think, self or the, <laughs> I think the self that we sort of expected, I think, to, to turn up and, you know, was able to kind of come through in, in five sets. But, you know, I think I think what what I was amazed by the most, I think, was that reference to Novak Djokovic in the the interview because it is a performance that you would say is Novak Djokovic-esque you know coming back from two sets down being known for all those battling kind of qualities feel like Medvedev did sort of perhaps channel (laughs) a bit of Novak Djokovic kind of in his performance. I think so. And and that's what he said. You know, he was trying to think what what would Novak do? And I think actually, yeah, it was quite a, a champion's performance the way he came back and I guess didn't really panic as well um, and was just like thinking a bit more rationally like, OK, what can I do now um, to, to turn this around? And I think, you know, I was impressed with both of them, actually, and, and how they kind of dealt with the situations that they found themselves in. Um, and I think, you know, it's just, it's always a shame, isn't it? When you see a player self-combust or, or, or just, you know, quite frankly, choke and go completely off the ball. And I don't think we saw that from either of them. Yes, there were moments where they weren't playing their best moments where they were brilliant. Um, but that's, that's life, isn't it? You're going to have those ups and downs and it's how you, you ride the storm. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the closeness, I think of the, the sets. Yeah. Again, suggests to me that. Felix Ogier Aliassime went out on court and he played he played the match that he you know would have wanted to play um and you know cre- I think credit to him because I think in the past we perhaps would have seen him you know wilt or you know become a bit more negative uh, a bit more reserved and he would have fallen away but I think that's what made it such a, a compelling match was that there was this kind of consistency I think from the first point to the last it just made it very entertaining for the the fans who stayed there past midnight. And it was interesting to hear, you know, from Felix Ogier Aliassim in his press conference afterwards, because he's, you know, I think he was looking back on this match and reflecting in a very kind of mature state in the sense of, you know, he, he played a very good game. And, uh, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, Medvedev, Medvedev just was that little bit better and, and won. And I thought that was kind of great kind of humility to kind of assess the situation, as you said, rationally and come away from it with the positives. And actually, no, you know, I'm, I'm 21 years old. My time will come at some point. There are other players probably in that position, like, you know, Carlos Alcaraz, for example. Um, but it's for me, it was a big, big contrast to kind of what we saw yesterday with his Canadian counterpart in, in Denis Shapovalov, who I do think maybe gets more distracted than than FAA, who I think is a lot more focused and can kind of read situations and evaluate kind of situations and learn from them, I think, a lot quicker than potentially someone like a Shapovalov dove, where he's just kind of focusing on, the, you know, all of the, the distractions around him. 
Yeah, I think um, the way both of those players have have dealt with the match and, you know, what they've said afterwards in their press conference does show you that their different attitudes. I mean, shall we let's let's go on and talk about the Rafa against Shapovalov match. I know that was, you know, the day before and we normally do it day by day. But I think this is a real case in point because we had obviously Rafa going two sets up, Shapovalov not really in the match. Um, it turns around those third and fourth sets. Rafa's struggling a lot, you know, very physically demanding the heat, um, you know, obviously incredibly tough to, to deal with. And we don't normally see Rafa struggling with the heat. You know, he normally loves the the sun and being out playing in the daytime, but he was having issues with his stomach, had to get seen to the doc- uh, by the doctor, get some a tablet, you know, having some stomach upset. Um, you know, he did really look sort of out of it, and you thought, "Oh gosh, as this as this is going on, going to five, like although he's Rafa, he's incredibly strong and has obviously played many, many tough and long matches in his career. He's, you know, as he said himself, like he's not a spring chicken mm. anymore. He's not twenty one mm. anymore. Um, so you did genuinely think, oh, when it went to that fifth set, you know, is this going to be yet like a repeat of of last year in the quarterfinals when Rafa lost from two sets up, but. Rafa did so well to kind of turn it around um, to stop Shapovalov keeping that momentum up and nipping it in the bud and, you know, played so well in that last set. And Shapovalov obviously quite frustrated at times in those first two sets. And then also like after in his press conference, you know, moaning about the time that Rafa takes before serving, moaning about the umpires, calling them corrupt uh, on the court, which was... um, you know, not uh, a very agreeable thing to say and just didn't give the right impression of, or, you know, it's, it's not done Shapovalov's image any favours to be kind of making claims and statements like that. It just, you know, what he said after the match, to me, just, he sounded, you know, like he wasn't coping very well with that defeat and was just a bit of a sore loser, for want of a better expression. You know, I think a lot of fans will have looked at that match looked at the way he handled his defeat and 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 thought yeah he could have handled you know handled that loss a lot better you can obviously understand why it is so frustrating frustrating given how well he played given that he was two sets up he said also you know coming off the court that physically he felt fine he just felt emotionally that he was a bit um spent and again just kind of going back to that point of whether he does let distractions you know get the better of him and you know over the over the off season yes he's been working on his game yes he's been bringing i think more patience into his his rally play you know waiting for those moments a bit more not necessarily going for the you know the flashy winner so early on in the rally but we've got to remember as much as as talent is uh you know a really core aspect of uh playing really high quality elite level tennis so is the the mental game and i think for me, this match showed for Shapovalov, it's not quite there at the moment. Um, you can you can see with the fact that you know right at the end of the match, he loses the match point. He was just not able to let it go. You know, he sm- slammed his his racket on the floor and left it on court. And you know, I do wonder whether he needs someone in his team, like a, a sports psychologist. I don't know if he's got one in his team at the moment, but it certainly feels like that again is something that can be sharpened in his you know in his locker because i think in order for him to reach you know maybe the you know the top 10 again potentially even go to the top 5 we've seen that he's can play i think top 5 level tennis but does he have the attitude and the the belief i think that someone like a, a medvedev has for example 
I don't think so at the moment. And I think that's a big opportunity. And I think that's a big opportunity missed actually at the, at the moment for Shapovalov and something that I think certainly he should be looking to work on so that when he does come to future Grand Slams, um, best of five set format where it can ebb and flow, there are momentum changes then he knows what you know then he knows what he's he needs to do and what he needs to think when he's uh you know faced with some sort of adversity because at the moment i think there're just too many distractions and they're just all getting on top of him yeah and i think he i thought he had turned a, a slight corner really you know in that semi-final against Djokovic at, at Wimbledon last year i don't remember seeing this sort of behavior but i guess maybe he you know felt that he should have progressed from that match to this match and and that Rafa was more there for the taking than obviously facing Djokovic. I mean, Kim, he did say, interestingly, he did say in his his, his interview afterwards that that yeah that kind of you're all corrupt comment was uh, in the heat of the moment. But he did stand by saying that he felt the big players uh, like Nadal do get preferential treatment. Now, I think that was quite interesting that he's. Do you, I mean, where 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 do you stand on that? Because I thought that was quite interesting. I mean, it was. I thought it was quite funny that, or quite ironic that Carlos Bernardes was the umpire in this match because you know he has had issues with timing and Rafa in the past. Uh, do you, like? Do you think he was being afforded too much time? Uh, we know this has been a, a common sort of hot topic, I think, throughout kind of Rafa's career. But just broadly speaking, do you think there is a sense of one rule for the you know the big three and and one rule for for everyone else or or do you think or do you think you know it's a load of nonsense and it's actually it's actually a leveling a level playing for level playing field in in the umpire's eyes well if you're an umpire your job is surely to be you know completely impartial and to mm. just adjudicate regardless of who the players are so i'd like to think that they are not um, having, you know, one rule for the the big three and one rule for everyone else. Um, obviously, Shapovalov isn't the first player to have moaned about Rafa taking his time. And I think, you know, sometimes Rafa does take his sweet time and mm. it can be, you know, for a spectator, not ideal. He's 35 um, years old. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> I just feel like naturally, like, yes, Dennis Shapovalov, he's like, what, 22? He's ready to go. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he's one of like the fastest people to be ready for the next point. Um, and I do think maybe there's a, there was an extreme there on, on the court today. Cause it was, you know, it, well, or yesterday, you know, was, it was hot. Um, it was brutal at times and that perhaps exacerbated the problem. Cause you know, as, as we, as we were saying, Nadal does, there are times when Nadal does, you know, overgo the, um, you know, does overgo the shot clock. I think though, if Shapovalov had won that match and was like winning comfortably, like would would mm. normally players mention it when they're losing and they sort of are kind of using it as a bit of an excuse when really at the end of the day, you know, you've got to deal with what the other player's doing, whether you like it or not. And I think for this particular match, according to the stats anyway, Shapovalov was only taking like two seconds less than Rafa. So he himself was not exactly you know, <laughs> serving straight away. Um, and I think also there's a bit of leeway, isn't there, sometimes from the rule book when it's incredibly hot, tough, physically demanding conditions. You know, we saw other players struggle on that day, like Barbora Krachikova, who was really out of sorts as a result of the the weather. So I think 
you know, yes, umpires probably do have a bit of leeway here and there. Whether they do it specifically for top players, I don't know. I think that's it's a tough claim to to make, but. I think, you know, would he have said that if he had won the match? No, I think he needs to look more yeah. at his own performance. He needs to know how to deal. He just needs to know how to deal with it. I don't feel like he knows how to deal with it. His his sort of response is, it just gets in his head and he's just wasted, wasting all of this energy, thinking about it, complaining to the umpire, looking across the internet, being frustrated by it and... Yeah, as I said, I think having something like a, a sports psychologist team to help him block that out and just focus on his game is going to be is going to be, I think, the way that he kind of unlocks the next level to his game and and rises up the rankings. I think even further. Yeah, for sure, it's it's a mostly a mental thing, isn't it? Mm. Um, I mean, let's talk about the other match that went five sets as well in the quarterfinals of the men, because you know three of them had kind of almost there were three matches that followed a similar pathway. You know, one player going two sets up, and um, you know it was only in Medvedev's case that he was able to to complete the comeback. But we had uh, obviously Matteo Berrettini against Gael Monfils. Berrettini going two sets up and then Gael Monfils doing his utmost to extend the match, coming back, uh, you know, winning the third and fourth sets. And we were all, you know, ready for a blockbuster fifth set. (laughs) But uh, that one was such a damp squib. Uh, I think Berrettini went a double break up very, very quickly for love. And by that point, you know, you think, well, that's that's it you know Monfils has been great um had some great sets of tennis but what a disappointing end to to the match you felt that Monfils yeah he certainly I think he certainly deserved you know one of the the opening one of the opening sets I felt like it could have been you know one set all going into the third particularly I think at the start of that second set there was a game where there was just (laughs) juice after juice after juice and it was it was really really fascinating and actually it was it was a game that i was like if there's someone who really likes no ad scoring then i would show them this game because it was one of those sort of battles within a battle uh i think it was berrettini trying to close out his service game monfils having none of it there were lots of passing shots and uh lots of you know juices it went to like a i think it was like a 15 minute game and i think berrettini was able to kind of close it out and then go on to to break Monfils and, and close out that second set. But yeah, it was um it felt like the damage had already been done and it was going to be very, very hard for for Monfils to come back from from two sets down. Having said that, it was still mightily impressive from him to get to a position where, you know, we were thinking, oh, could he do the could he do the impossible? Could he be someone not named Novak Djokovic and, and meet beat Matteo Berrettini? at a Grand Slam, um, you know, for, for the first time since, uh, you know, the start of 2021. So, you know, it, it was, it wasn't meant to be, but at the same time, it's just been a, I think a fantastic, a fantastic ride. I think for, for Gail Monfils, I was not expecting this level of, of tennis. I was not expecting him to, to be in a, a quarterfinal um, of a Grand Slam in, in 2022. And again, I think what's, what's been great to see, I think in terms of his game is that, you know, just look at watching it on TV and look at his facial expressions. He was, you know, he was there to win. He was not there just to play the entertainer, do a, you know, do a tweener from the back of the court or do a, you know, a slam dunk smash. Yes, those elements were were there, but at the same time, you could see etched on his face. He was like, right, this is my opportunity to to win and get myself back into a 
a Grand Slam semi-final. And I really, I actually really, really admire that, that he's not kind of just, I think, rested on, I think, what is probably a little bit more natural to him, you know, like a, a Denis Shapovalov. And actually, he's grown and, and matured a bit more. And, um, you know, I hope I hope he can stay fit. I always feel like injuries are a concern with him. I hope he can stay fit and, um, yeah, kind of keep up this, I think, winning attitude that I think could potentially lead to this season being a, a resurgence for him. I think you know, he spoke in his, his, his in the post-match on-court interview afterwards about, you know, you know I, I want to you know, do this as, as long as possible. And, you know, I will try, try and try again. And I love that, you know, off, you know at 35 years old, we're talking about him in a quarterfinal uh, in a quarterfinal at a Grand Slam. Yeah, I mean, sort of similar to Rafa in the sense that they're both of the same tennis generation and the same sort of age and feeling it a bit more in the body and yet still doing like remarkable <laughs> things on a tennis court. So I think, you know, he's, yeah, certainly see titles for him this year if he can stay fit because, you know, he's already won Adelaide or one of the Adelaide events and this is some of the best tennis that he's ever played. So I think perhaps... You know, if if he if Berrettini had been ten years older as well, you know, I think he did have a an advantage in in age, and that will also be the case against Rafa in the semi final. Um, what do you? I mean, just on Berrettini, what are you making of the the Hugo Boss uh, outfit that he's he's donning for this <laughs> tournament? Are you, are you a fan? I've heard sort of mixed mixed reviews. I mean, I personally think it's a, a match made in heaven. I totally think he fits that that brand image that sort of masculinity that he just i think you know oozes um he's got i think a real kind of commanding presence and i think that that works well um i know there are some people who question whether he needs to have the the backwards hat but i know that's a a fashion preference for him but yeah i quite i quite i quite like the you know the the all black look i think it's quite a powerful presence and i think on a player like berrettini yeah i think it i think it works quite well yeah, I just I'm not a fan of just the the word boss on the front of the <laughs> shirt, but I know it's Hugo Boss. I know that's obviously their kind of logo, but it just but I maybe it's you know he's thinking, well, I'm I'm the boss of this court, so it's it's helping him. I mean, Kim, cru- crucially, I, the, one of the reasons I actually want uh, Gail Monfils' uh, resurgent to continue, so that we can hopefully see more of Elena Svitolina in or Elena Monfils even in his in his box because she also has a, fa- a fashion sense of her own i mean she was breaking out what i thought was like the you know the early noughties uh headband um look which i have I, again i've not seen i don't think in, in a couple of date a couple of decades uh i thought that was a couple was of funny. decades <laughs> yeah she had a, a bandana I, I feel like that was maybe practical to stop her scalp getting burnt but um y- you did say before we started recording that that was very hannah from s club seven <laughs> i, I don't know if any listeners remember s club seven i'm Probably sure not. some of them do um they were they were legendary joel how could you not <laughs> like s club seven Kim, I, I saw hilariously someone had noted on, on Twitter that I thought this was quite cruel, actually, but I thought it was quite funny at the same time. Someone had noted that um, the, the camera shots of um, Elena in that match uh, all the way through that five sets added up to more time than she spent on court against Azarenka um, in her earlier match where she crashed Ooh. out, which I thought was quite harsh. But uh, but true, I suppose. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, Elena's for Elena fans. Oh, she did get sort of blasted off the court against mm. Azarenka, didn't she? Bless. 
Rafa Rafa Berrettini semi final. What do you where where do you think that go? I think they've only played once. I think that was at the US Open where Rafa won. Are you seeing any problems for for Rafa? Do you think you know? I mean, obviously he's come through a five set match, but he's had two days off, so you'd like to think maybe that his body will be well rested in time for for another battle potentially to go go deep and maybe into a fifth set. Well, yeah, I mean, I was quite pleased that Monfils and Berrettini went five because I was thinking, oh, you know, they need to tire themselves out to give Rafa more of a chance. Um, I think it's it's weird because there's sort of quite a few parallels to that US Open in 2019 because if Rafa's going to try and win this this tournament here, he's going to have to beat potentially exactly the same players, Berrettini and then Medvedev, to, to do so. But um, obviously, I think the Berrettini of now is very different to the Berrettini from that semi-final, he's got a lot more experience, developed his game, you know, older and wiser, although still very young. And I think it's definitely going to be a lot tougher um, for Rafa. I, it could go five. It could go five. Um, I'd be surprised if it was a straight sets match. Um, it's yeah. going to be in the day as well, isn't it? And uh, I think the weather is still supposed to be very hot. So I just hope that they're both like, phys- I just hope there's no sort of, I wouldn't want anyone to lose because of feeling like affected by the heat and, and feeling sick. And, you know, like we saw with Krachikova, I hope it's not because of that. Well, I think having that match in the day session would favour Nadal. I think I also saw recently that his last five losses, I think, at the Australian Open all have come in a night session. So I do think there is something there around him liking the, you know, the, I think the day the day court uh, conditions are favourable to his game. I think there's maybe perhaps a little bit more pop um, on his, you know, on his heavy topspin shots from the the baseline that perhaps don't reach as high um, in the in night conditions. So maybe that favours him. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll have to see. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I feel like I feel like I. I mean, I've predicted Nadal in my collector set to win the win, and I, I do think he will come through Berrettini. I do think it will be quite a tight contest i do think there will be tie breaks involved i think they're going to be very hard both very hard i think to break down on serve and i think you know nadal will obviously need to find a way of of managing that big hammer first serve from berrettini and that one two you know that one two serve big forehand that i think he likes to play and you know mitigate from playing too many you know, double-handed backhands. So might just come down to a question of of whether Nadal can kind of stay in the rally but be on his serve, be on those sort of one-two punches um, and get it onto his backhand as much as possible. Yeah, I think um, it's... Oh, I, I feel like some people have been saying, you know, Rafa's never had such a good chance to, you know, get another <laughs> Australian Open title. You, Kim, no you were writing it. him off. You were writing him off, I swear, before uh, before any tennis had been played in Melbourne. I think, you know, Rafa, no, but to be fair, Rafa said himself that even like two months ago or whatever, he wasn't sure if he'd be back. So I think I mean, he was on crutches four months ago, surprised. which is unbelievable. Yeah. So he surprised himself. He wasn't really sure. So I think we just need to 
literally appreciate the fact that he's at this stage and that's what I'll be focusing on anyway focusing about that rather than stressing too much uh, about the end result I mean one player that had a very relaxed quarterfinal was Stefanos Sitspas because he swept past Yannick Sinner in straight sets 6-3-6-4-6-2 this was a very comfortable victory I, I have to say I thought this would be a lot closer um, Sitspas didn't even face a break point uh, very comfortable on serve. And I mean, is he blooming, peaking at the right time? He's been quite under the radar. I think a lot of people had written him off, you know, ourselves included because of this recent elbow surgery. But it seems to have helped in the fact that he doesn't have pressure on him. He's just kind of got through those a few like tougher first rounds. And maybe he's he's literally turning it really on at, the, at the, just the right time. Yeah, d- yeah, definitely. I think the you know it's funny we spoke about Nadal and and his you know injury troubles. You know, as I said, he had a there's a photo of him from you know f- I think f- like three four months ago with him you know on crutches, and perhaps he surprised him himself by the fact that not only is he you know playing in the Australian Open, but is able to get to uh, the semi-finals. Well, yeah, it sounds like with with Sissipas with his elbow, um, you know, we've had reports of his doctor saying that he wouldn't be even ready to play um, the Australian Open after his surgery. So I think he's perhaps surpassed and, and surprised with how you know well he has done. I wouldn't say it's necessarily been as pretty and maybe as serene as, as some of the other players who have kind of got to this stage. But at the same time, he's still in the draw and he is now, I think, firing on all cylinders. I think he needed... I think that 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 Taylor Fritz match almost kind of jolted him. I think into, uh, yeah, realizing like, or or, or or I think certainly find it, making him play, um, you know, close to his best tennis, and I think he's just carried that through um, into this match against Yannick Sinner, who I think will be disappointed with with how it went because I certainly think he is better than that. I certainly think he's better than just losing in in straight sets in very kind of comprehensive fashion. Um, but at the same time, I don't really think Sissipas gave him a look in. Um, you know, seventy nine percent of first serve points. He had early breaks in each set. It was just all very comfortable, and I think Sinner will be disappointed with just how comfortable it was. He could have perhaps been a bit too passive and, and placid, and you know, I, I I still think with Yannick Sinner, we're still talking about him as a, a player who's maybe a little one or two steps behind, like a, a Shapovalov or a. Felix Auger Aliasim in the sense that he, he doesn't have the the nous I feel to really kind of test the the top top players um in the grand slams when it comes to the when it comes to you know fourth round quarterfinal stage it all just seems to it all just seems to kind of fall apart quite quickly for him do you think he's going to be another Grigor Dimitrov mm. a lot of promise and expectation but perhaps not able to deliver at you know, the real slam stage. I mean, he's still extremely young. I'm probably being very harsh. I just feel he needs a bit more oomph. And, you know, I'm a fan of Sinner. I would love him to to get that extra edge. But does he need, are you, do you think he needs Carlos Alcaraz as his body coach over the summer? Well, yeah, maybe he does need to, <laughs> to beef up a bit. But <laughs> I mean, everyone has a different physique. So not saying that that is necessary. But I just, yeah, I feel like he just needs that extra something to you know, finally, I just feel like, yes, we were all looking forward to this match being a lot more competitive and perhaps in time, 
you know, it will be because I, you know, these two are going to be playing each other a lot over the next few years or so. So, um, you know, it's a learning curve. I'm sure he'll look back at what he could and should have done. But Sitsipas was very, very good today. And I mean, going into the semi-final with Medvedev, this is a repeat of last year's semi when Medvedev won in straight sets. It's slightly different. You know, Sitsipas went into that match having had that long five-setter with, with Rafa. He was quite tired. It was quite obvious that he was, didn't really have you know, full kind of um, vitality in, in that match, I think. So Medvedev came through quite comfortably. I have to say, I think it's going to be a lot closer uh, this time round. I know Medvedev has a has, has a winning head-to-head, I believe, over Sitsipas. Yes. Uh, yeah, he's 6-2. Medvedev 6, uh, Sitsipas 2 in the head-to-head. Sitsipas did win their last encounter, but that was on, on clay uh, at Roland Garros. I think Medvedev will have good memories, obviously, of, of beating him in straight sets last year. I would not surprise if it is a, a completely different affair. I don't think, I don't think you can actually read too much into into that match they played, um, you know, in the semi-finals last year. I think they're going to have to just treat it, um, you know, treat it differently. <laughs> I do wonder if if Medvedev is going to have to play more like Novak in order to to come through Sispas, who seems to be firing on all cylinders and, and peaking at the right time. I still do think Medvedev should have, you know, too much for him. It also didn't look like, you know, his hip was really troubling him. Um, so I don't think there's going to be any potentially injury niggles. So I do I do sort of still favour Medvedev, but I do think that at the same time for Sissipas, this is a, you know, this is a very big and decent opportunity, I think, for him to to reach the Australian Open Men's men's final, probably, uh, you know, at a time he was maybe least expecting it. Well, exactly. And I think for quite a few of the, well, certainly him and Rafa, I think, you know, health wise, they're both bouncing back from situations that they just thought would have them out for a lot longer or, you know, forever. So um, we'll have to see how it goes. That'll be the night match on Friday. Hoping for an entertaining one uh, because, you know, We've had some ent- very entertaining quarterfinals. Ladies draw, on the other hand, slightly less entertaining in, this, in the in the quarterfinals. But we'll get on to that after a very quick break. So do join us in just a second where we'll be looking at those quarters. Okay, do not go anywhere. Welcome back to The Passing Shot with Joel and Kim, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. And now we're going to move on to look at the ladies' quarterfinals because we've had um, quite a few um, straight setters. I think uh, yesterday's were very one-sided uh, with Ash Barty routing Jessica Bagula uh, for the loss of two Well, are games. we expecting anything different, Kim? Well, I thought that would be closer. I didn't really expect her to only lose two games. Um, you know... Pagula started off all right. She went 40 love up on serve and then they had a very long first game. Pagula dropped that her serve yeah. and that was as good as it was probably going to get. I mean, Barty after that kind of, yeah, first few games, she was making a few errors here and there, but off, you know, she then sort of reeled off nine games in a row, um, you know, closed it out just over an hour. <laughs> just, you know, sensational stuff really. Um, it's very difficult for anyone else, you know, coming up against her to to really make too much of an inroad at the moment. No, exactly. And again, Jessica Bigula just did not know. She just did not know, I think, what she was facing on the other side of the net. 
and it was you know, your typical Ash Barty, lots of backhand slices, lots of you know angled forehands, very solid on serve. And again, very, very business-like and impressive performance from her. She actually becomes the first Australian to make the semi-finals uh, of the Australian Open since it's moved to Melbourne Park twice. Uh, obviously, she did it back in 2020. Now she's done it in 2022. Uh, yeah, so surprisingly, like players such as Leighton Hewitt, Pat Cash, Pat Rafter only have achieved one semi-final so it just I think shows how much pressure I think there is on home hopes we we all know that um, as British fans with you know Wimbledon Andy Murray Tim Hemman so I think again I think what's been impressive is how well she has handled the expectation and the pressure I mean it, she does, she's not playing with any pressure at the moment and you know I've been again reading some some comments talking about you know is she playing like Roger Federer-esque levels of, of tennis on the, you know, on the women's side. And at the moment it's, it's hard to, it's hard to disagree because of the, of the score lines. We, we Kim, I think we're getting to a point where it's, I'm thinking, is she going to win the tournament without dropping a set? Are we going to be talking about how many, you know, <laughs> how many games has she, has she lost as opposed to sets? It's just, it's just been that clinical and that good. And to be honest, that's scary, I think, um, going into her, you know, going into her semifinals. Yeah, I've been sort of waiting for that match where she doesn't quite turn up like like we saw last year against Mukova um, or at the US Open. I think I think, I think she's Gell learned Rogers. from that. I think she's learned mm. from that experience, uh, you know, that Mukova match that. That, that that is probably going to be in the back of her mind, I think, in terms of, you know, there are banana skins but she's she's just not slipping is she <laughs> and yeah she hasn't even you know got to a a tense stage in any really mm. of her matches you know no. no hasn't dropped a set like you said hasn't bet she's lost her serve once I mean that 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 has got to give you a lot of confidence going into matches and even though it's your home slam and there's all that pressure she doesn't seem to be showing it or feeling it outwardly I'm sure she does have a little bit internally but she's not showing it so her opponents aren't getting to her um or pouncing on that because I guess they can't really sense it from her so yeah I've she's exceeded what I thought would happen um I have to say but I mean I had I had thought that Osaka would play her in the fourth round and beat her so you know take that out of the equation um She's got Madison Keys next, who won also very easily over Barbora Krachikova. I mean, this match was very much Keys, you know, being very on it, but also Krachikova, very, you know, difficult conditions, struggling a lot with the heat. This was Krachikova, pass me the doctor pills, please, because, yeah, she was absolutely not at the races, it felt like, for the, the majority of the match. Yeah, her, I think her coach sort of said she should retire from the match because she was um, very dizzy and struggling to breathe. And I think she obviously had that last year at the US Open and when it was very hot. So obviously a player that does just struggle with the heat a lot more than than other players. And, um, you know, I mean, if it if that hadn't have been a factor, obviously Madison Keys, you know, potentially would have would have won anyway we're not saying that that is the reason that critique of a lost Madison Keys a lot more at home with these um high temperatures you know she's 
she trains in Florida, so um, obviously probably better equipped to deal with intense heat and humidity. Um, but she's she is unbeaten, isn't she, Keys? I think so far this year, she's won eleven matches on the trot, which I think is exactly the same amount as of matches that she won on the tour for the whole of last year um so I think that is already obviously her season has exceeded last year uh, <laughs> what a great so you, position to be in yeah You've the only way is matches. up yeah, yeah exactly. well as many matches not even at the end of the end of January um yeah it's been it's been it's been great to see I think from from Madison Keys. um I think I think we've already th- always kind of associated her with you know a power a power game from the, the back of the court but I think it's been a game that again we've associated with being quite high like high risk and you know there there are you know when unforced errors kind of creep into her game um it doesn't look very pretty and I think what's been impressive with this run this week is that she's been I think she's been playing with a little bit more margin and it's not necessarily been as high risk I think in terms of a, a brand of tennis as maybe we saw, you know, a few seasons ago. And having said that, she's still playing with that power um, and that ferocity, I think that can, I think just hit literally hit players off, off the court, but perhaps she's doing it with a little bit more margin. And that is why we're seeing these very, I think, commanding results where, you know, again, she's coming through some of these players, uh, you know, in the in the, in the draw, very similar to you know score lines that you know Ash Barty is producing. I do think, though, against Ash Barty, is that going to be enough? You know, Barty mm. has a lot more variety with her slice, and I just think she's going to throw Keys' rhythm off um, and not allow her to just you know hit through the court. Does Madison Keys have a plan B? I think is going to be under examination. I think in in that semi you know in that semi final against Barty because you do you do expect you know the the, Bart, the Barty's kind of variety you know the backhand slice I think is going to be very important keeping the ball low I don't think it's going to it's not necessarily going to be sitting up for Madison Keys to take a swing at and and hit you know hit some winners I think it's going to be very very different and I think Keys in her approach to that match I think is going to need to have some sort of plan B, some sort of alternative if it's not going to go her way like it has been um, so far, so far this season. Yeah, I think I think this is where her 11 match streak will, you know, come to an end. I think Barty will, will make it into the final. I think Barty's looking good, you know, good and set for the for the title because on the other half, we've got Igor Svantec and Danielle Collins. And I don't think, I mean... No offence to either of them, but I think Barty will get the better of both of them as well because, you know, whoever she would potentially play in the final. Um, obviously, Danielle Collins came through against Elise Cornet in uh, straight sets. I think it was 7-5, six, 6 love, I think, um, or 6-1 in that second set. I mean, <sighs> Collins obviously been to this stage before of a Grand Slam. Again, she's another player that, I don't know if she thought that she would get back into this situation because she's had, you know, some surgeries in the last couple of years. She's had her her long-term battle with endometriosis. And, you know, I think she probably questioned whether she would be playing this well again, making it through to the latter stages. But here she is. And it's a fantastic story. She's also now into the top 20 for the very first time in her career. So um, I'm really pleased for her. I, I really admire always her kind of grit and determination she's 
she's always quite an entertaining person to watch on the court even if her opponents perhaps don't appreciate her yelling all the time but I think you know it's always good to see her getting fired up and Cornet, I think was just a bit too hot and tired to really uh, try and fight back after losing that that kind of tighter first set today. Yeah, Danielle Collins is a, a real character, isn't she? She's very intense uh, on the court. And I think that intensity is one of the reasons that she, I think, does so well, you know, at Grand Slams. I feel like she always, you know, quite the opposite, I think, to, to Madison Keys, who I think perhaps is a bit too reliant maybe on a, on a plan A game. I actually think Collins is one of those players who, you know, her sort of fight her fight to win means that she's going to leave she's going to leave no stern no stone unturned she's going to kind of look at any sort of route she can um you know to win it to winning a match she just wants to get it done and um yeah i think you know coming through cornet again another great story for for cornet first first ever grand slam quarterfinal she just kind of i think ran out of steam against danielle collins who you know will make her debut into the top 20 next week i mean it's been a great you know it's been a great tournament hasn't it kim for for americans at um you know and in the in the ladies in the ladies draw two two semi-finalists jessica bugula as well getting to the quarterfinals amanda anisimova as well with that amazing win over naomi osaka but yeah danielle collins really kind of leading the way you feel um in terms of, I think just showing, just showing how to get it done, and just kind of move on to the, ne- you know, move on to the next round, and, um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, she's got Iga Shvontek next, who had a bit more of a a tussle against Kaya Kanepi. I think actually it was her longest match in a Grand Slam, one minute over the three hour mark. So there's going to be potential questions there. Even though Shiontek may go into the favourite as that, there's going to be questions there of how, of how much does she has does Shiontek have left in the tank? And against a, a fit and firing Daniel Collins, uh, you know that might be that might be closer than perhaps some people are expecting. I mean, Collins has had a few three setters, I think, against Clara Torson and Elise Mertens. But um, yeah, there's only one day uh, between matches. They're playing literally uh, straight away <laughs> the next day. But Shiontek is what twenty one. So you'd think that she should physically be able to recover. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it'll be interesting because when she won Roland Garros 2020, she breezed through that draw, you know, barely dropping games. So if she can, you know, potentially win the title here, she's, she's going to have to have done it, you know, in a bit of a grittier fashion, you know, a couple of three setters and, you know, just not having that kind of ease of, of sort of through the draw and, I think, you know, that's what she said, that she's been really working on um, finding solutions on the court when she's in, you know, adverse positions. And, you know, she spoke about... She, was a, set, with... she was a set and a breakdown against uh, against Canepi. Exactly. And, you know, she spoke about working with the sports psychologist when she won Roland Garros. And obviously she's still working with her um, to kind of really focus on how to deal with adversity in these matches because she didn't have much adversity when she won her first Grand Slam. So I think, um, you know, that's testament to, I guess, the work that she's been doing. Um, She was able to turn it around today against, you know, a very seasoned opponent who, um, yeah, could well have, you know, that that second set was a tie break. It could very well have have gone Canepi's way, give or take a few points. And well, certainly that would have been a very unexpected uh, semi-finalist. And 
Kim, the I, I I'm going to admit I did not watch a lot of this match, but I did see Match Point over and over because it was an incredible show of defense for Ian Gorsh Fionte. I actually, listeners, I recommend if there's one shot, one point you want to watch today, it is the Match Point uh, in the Fionte Kinepi match, and yeah, the defense I think that Fionte showed was, you know, for me was a sign of a player who. Could you know? I you know I don't think necessarily it's a foregone conclusion. This is going to be Ash Barty's title because I do think that the defence that Shviontek shows, I think, is a good foundation, a good platform for her to potentially mount her own challenge um, to win her you know her second Grand Slam title. It's obviously not necessarily going to be easy, and she's got to come through Danielle Collins first. But I think she will have tremendous belief given those adverse positions. She's found herself in in Grand Slams, in Grand Slam matches, and has come back from. Um, you know, she is now five and zero in three set matches where she's lost the first set on the Grand Slam stage. So I think she's going to have tremendous confidence, regardless of what I think Danielle Collins is is throwing at her. If she's a breakup, if she's a, a setup, or if she's a set and a breakup, I don't know. But I think regardless of that, Shiontek is going to have that confidence that yeah. She's going to be able to to find a, a find a way to win, but you just know that Daniel Collins is one of those players. He's not gonna. She's probably not going to let it go that easily. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, both of these semi-finals, they may not be what we've predicted, uh, as is often the case with with the ladies, but they are very entertaining matches that I'm going to enjoy um, watching them. Even though I, I do believe that Barty will win fairly comfortably, and I think Schwantet will come through in a in a tougher match. I think we're going to have a Barty Shrontek final. I still expect Barty, given what we've seen the last, you know, 10 days or so to come through. But um, yeah, they're both on in the night as well uh, from, I think, 8.30 British time tomorrow. So um, I think, is that the first time that they've both been night matches? Because I don't remember that being the case before. So I'm quite pleased that we get to, we get the the luxury of being able to actually watch them both in our time zone. I mean, just before we get on to the order of play for day 11, uh, let's just talk about some of the doubles news, Kim. I know you love a bit of doubles. Uh, so we've still got we've still got British interest. We've got Joe Salisbury and Rajiv Ram into the semi-finals um, of the men's doubles. Uh, they play Matthew Ebden and Max Purcell. I think it's Max. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I was trying to think of his first name. Yes. But I, Kim, I know, I know you're going to hate me for saying this. We've got the special K's on the other side of the draw. We've got Kokinakis and Kyrios coming up against Granolas and Zabios. Uh, we could have, but I mean, an all Australian double men's doubles final is still on the cards. Hoping as a British fan, that isn't the case. But yeah, it's quite funny to see, uh, Nick Kyrios in a, a men's doubles men's doubles semi-final I wasn't I wasn't expecting that um you know at the start of the tournament it'll be the only only time he gets to that stage <laughs> of a grand slam <laughs> um his best and only potential chance mm. at a grand slam we could title, get to perhaps. a fi- I wouldn't be surprised I mean do you think with with home support they could come through Granolis and Zorzabios I mean that is a pretty seasoned team I mean yes it's on hard and, and not clay maybe that favors Kokinakis and, and Kyrgios but well, uh, Granadas and Ceballos got to the Wimbledon final last year, so they are well, all caught very pairing. true, very true. Um, I expect, yeah, I I would really like 
for it not to be an Australian in the final because I want Rajiv and uh, Joe to, to go to go through. And I would also quite like Marcel from a Spanish perspective to get there as well. So, um, I mean, annoyingly, Ebden and Purcell beat Neil Skupski and Wesley Coolhoff. No, it's very final. tight. Very yeah. tight in that final set. So their their winning streak since they started their partnership has has come to an end. Um, so yeah, come on, Joe. Our remaining, our last remaining hope for any British success, um, in the doubles. But we've also got the women's semis as well, um, set for the doubles. So Krachikova and Sinyakova, assuming Krachikova is sort of recovered from her her woes of yesterday. Uh, they're playing Mertens and. Kudamatova in the semi-final and then the bottom of the draw we've got second seeds Ayama and Shibahara against Danilina and Haddad Maya so I think that's a Kazakh Brazilian pairing uh, they're the only pairing that are unseeded uh, everyone else is you know there are the top three seeds so that's kind of gone mostly very much to the the form book um, I think well yeah that that top semi between the Czechs and uh, Kudamatova and Mertens that that is, I mean, that's a very, very tight and close affair with that one. So um, I can see, well, it's, that's a really tough one to pick. Um, I think any of the top three seeds are going to win that. So, <laughs> um, And then the mixed doubles, though, Joel, they potentially, well, Australians do have, a, you know, potential winners here with a world card pairing of Fawless and Kubler. Um, I think it might be Jamie Fawless and Jason Kubler, I think. Uh, against Mladenovic and Dodig uh, in the final. So, uh, yeah, I mean, mixed doubles is sort of a bit of a lottery, isn't it? But you would have to go with Mladenovic and Dodig unless the crowd are going to, you know, get the Aussie wildcards to cross the finish line. We shall see. Yes, yes, definitely. And listeners, we, we spoke about collector set yesterday. We we did we have made a mistake. We we can hold our hands up. We have made a mistake. We missed. Uh, apologies to some people who've entered. We missed some people off, didn't we, Kim? Uh, we've now entered them, and actually, we do have an outright leader at the moment. Yeah, I do apologise. This was totally my fault. Um, I've just missed off uh, our Instagram entrance so apologies <laughs> i was obviously so determined to be in the halfway lead point yes, that i yes you were you wanted to <laughs> shut these people out i know so conan minnook uh, who um is one of our listeners via instagram he submitted his guesses and he's actually on on for the for the lead uh, with all four at the moment so he could be potentially the first person to ever get six correct guesses, which would be amazing if that happens. So it all relies on what Rafa and Iga are going to do in the next two days or so. Um, so we'll obviously give everyone another update uh, at the end of the week. Um, so well done, Conan, and apologies for missing you guys out initially. Um, my, our passing shot admin needs, needs work. Um, <laughs> but yeah, let's look at uh, tomorrow's order of play because we've got the you know, the women's and the men's double semis happening, which you just touched upon. Obviously, the women's singles semi-finals uh, in the night. Dylan Alcott is also in the quad wheelchair singles final, going for, I think, his eighth straight Australian Open title. Um, I love he's they just put that been... on Rod Laver. I love that yes. they put, managed to fit that in on Rod Laver because he's retiring, isn't he? So, yeah, yeah. It's great it's his to... last match. Yeah. yeah, great to get a, a, set, a proper, proper send-off before... Uh, before the ladies' semi-final starts. Yeah, exactly. He's playing Sam Schroeder. Um, he's also just been named Australian of the Year, um, mm. which is sort of, uh, I guess, similar to 
British knighthoods. He's well, he's also got an officer of the order uh, in the honours list. So um, fantastic, you know, and very well deserved and, and achieved for him. Um, I mean, another player, Joel, as well, that has announced their retirement, which really should have been headline news on this podcast, is that Freddie Nielsen is no longer <laughs> playing professional tennis, which, uh, you know, is obviously very sad and he will be sorely missed on tour. Um, you know, ser- services to Danish tennis and obviously that unforgettable 2012 Wimbledon doubles title. He's provo- he's passed the the baton over to Casper Holgerud. No, I'm getting my sc- uh, yeah, my geography's uh, my geography's shocking. Sorry, I meant Holgerud. Yes, um, no, Kim. I swear you're the only person who actually still keeps up to date on Freddie Nielsen movements. But uh, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I mean, last last word, Kim. We've got the the ladies semi-finals. Are you are you going for Barty Barty Sviontek? You're you're expecting that to be your ladies final set after tomorrow's play? Uh yes, Barty Sviontek and dare I guess the men's um Oh, I want to say Rafa against Sitsipas. I think Sitsipas is actually going to win this thing now. Um I think I, I don't really know. Um, I can see Berrettini beating Rafa as well, but I obviously want Rafa to win. Uh, and I'm just less sure about Medvedev now after today. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's, it feels like it's going to be Barty Sviontek in the ladies. I'm going to go Rafa, Rafa Medvedev still. I still think Medvedev's got enough in his locker for Sissa Pass, but we will, we will have to wait and see another day. We've got the ladies semi-finals, first of all, coming up tomorrow. Um, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of The Passing Shot. Remember to subscribe to us on whatever device you listen to us on to stay up to date on all the action at the Australian Open. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcasting platforms out there. You can also listen to us on the DownloadTennis.com app. And if you like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can follow us on social media if you don't already. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Passing Shot Pod. So do give us a like and a follow if you don't already. Uh, you can get in contact with us on all those social channels or you can email us if you prefer on PassingShotPod at gmail.com. And you can also check out our website www.thepassingshot.co.uk. And we will be back on Friday at Passing Shot HQ to discuss all the semi-final action at Melbourne Park. So I hope you can join us for that. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Kim. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. We'll see you again soon. 